Hey, Artemis listeners, we want to hear from you. Now through November 2nd, you can enter to win a $100 gift card to Isle Royale Outfitters by completing our listener survey. Click the link in the show notes to share your thoughts with us today. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Chance, and my guest today is Tice Suplee. Hey, Tice. Hey, Ashley. Great to hear you. Yeah, where are you? Where are you at today? I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. Ooh, is it is it desert hot right now? <laughs> Not like it was. Okay, <laughs> so that's we're good. enjoying a uh, day where the high will probably be 93 degrees, which for a desert rat is wonderful. Yeah, I mean, 93 and not humid doesn't sound very bad to me, really. No, no, it's it's pretty A-OK. Cool. Well, I'm assuming in weather like that, you have a freezer. Yes. <laughs> Do you want to share what's in it? Oh, my gosh. It's nearly empty, largely because I haven't been successful on my recent hunt exploits. Uh, so my plans this fall are... Um, uh, a white-tailed deer hunt, uh, which will be late next month, and uh, joining a friend of mine who successfully drew a muzzleloader cow elk tag. Mm. So I figure if I help in her camp, maybe I'll get some of her elk meat. <laughs> there you go. That's a, Yeah, that's a good method, I think. Yep, yep. So actually, what's left is one elk roast from a elk I killed a few years ago on an archery elk hunt. Gotcha. Was it a bull or a cow? That particular one was a bull. And so I have his skull hanging on my wall over the fireplace. So He isn't big, but I was very proud of the accomplishment. And there's quite a, a tale that went with finding him and bringing him home and butchering him and doing all that stuff. <laughs> Yeah, maybe we might need to get into that tale. I've <laughs> an archery hunt for elk is on my bucket list. I've I've rifle hunted for elk in late season, but I've never hunted during the rut. And like you said, I don't care if it was a big bull or a small bull or even a cow. Just to be out there during that time, I think oh, would be absolutely. pretty cool. I love that time of year with the bulls bugling and the cows running around, and it's just a wonderful time of year to be in. The forest, I had one of these permits last year and got foiled uh, despite my um, pre-scouting and cross-referencing with people who knew the unit. When I got up there, there had been a lot of rain beforehand and actually during that really changed the patterns of where the elk were. And when I finally nearly buried my truck in mud, I called it quits. <laughs> Sometimes knowing when to do that, I think, is a skill in and of itself. That's right. I still had a great time. <laughs> it's so beautiful uh, to be in the forest that time of year. The aspen are turning. It's just lovely. Uh, it sounds beautiful. Um, where are you going to go on your elk hunt? Um, my friend has a permit um a little south and east of flagstaff okay and i actually i meant to say i had elk on the brain but i was actually wondering about the whitetail hunt because there's not oh. whitetail where you are right no there are not but we have uh what are called the cows white-tailed deer 
They're coos smaller. Deer. Yeah, right. Yeah, coos, okay. cows, coos cows. Yeah, I've yeah. heard it as coos, but right. And so um, these little guys aren't as large as your eastern or midwest whitetail. It's the same species and genus, just a different subspecies. And um, they are found in what we call the Sky Island mountain ranges of southeast Arizona. So where I will be hunting is in the Huachuca Mountains, south and west, east of Tucson. And I'm eyeing an area around um, the southwest corner of the unit. Very cool. Is that a hard tag to get a hold of? No, um, these are really easy. People are spooky about hunting on the border with Mexico. Mm. Um, I'm not too distressed by that personally. Um, and also, um, the, the, there are a lot of white-tailed deer hunt opportunities. It's a hard tag to fill. So the hunter's success tends to be more in the range of 20 to 25% for this animal. Oof. And so game and fish department is able to issue more opportunities. <laughs> gotcha. That makes sense. Right. <laughs> Very cool. Well, could you tell us a little bit more about who you are? Ah, well, I've been at this a long time. I'm personally getting a little long of tooth. So I'm in my subjective. Seventh... <laughs> yeah, I'm in my seventh dec- decade. So I've been in Arizona since I graduated from Cornell University in the 1970s and landed my first job in Arizona and I just stayed here. I really like the state a lot and um, had a career with our state game and fish department. Uh, Starting in the research uh, division, I then was in uh, one of our regions, uh, the one in southeast Arizona based out of Tucson. I was a habitat program manager, and at the time, uh, that job required my getting a game uh, warden certification. So I'm a Arizona game ranger retired. And so that was a fun part of my career was the law enforcement uh, piece. And uh, then I um, finished out my career as chief of game management. So I oversaw the statewide programs for hunting and um, the uh, management projects associated with our hunted uh, species, including uh, transplant and restoration efforts of animals like bighorn sheep and uh, pronghorn antelope. Wow, that was the most succinct synopsis of what must have been a storied career that I've ever heard. (laughs) Well, at this point, after retiring from the game department for the last 17 years, I've been working for the National Audubon Society as the director of bird conservation, initially for Audubon, Arizona, and then we merged with New Mexico. So now it is Audubon Southwest, and so I uh, have two states. Wow. Okay. So is there a big thing that we do on the podcast really is just sharing stories from sportswomen and women conservationists, researchers, all of that. Um, And you, so you fit the bill perfectly. Um, (laughs) One of the things that strikes me, we, I don't think we have spoken to any women in law enforcement to date 
So is there a story that you would like to share with us about your time um, as a game warden? Yeah, I think my favorite story was what I would consider my one really major big game case. And I had been assigned to patrol the uh, rifle elk hunt in a management unit up around um, uh, Heber and Forest Lake. So up on the uh, Mogollon Rim in Arizona. And um, I had been mentored quite well by my colleagues. And so one of the things I typically would do on a patrol is start to poke around and explore the less traveled roads and find the hunting camps that were kind of buried back there somewhere. And I found one and um, the hunters were all out. Nobody was in camp. And uh, I started to kind of look around and the other thing I had been taught to do is kind of look back away from the tents and all and see if maybe there was an animal hanging from a tree. <laughs> and sure enough, there were two dead cow elk um, hanging from the trees behind the tents. And so I went to check them thinking I'd find that they were legally tagged and the group was out trying to film some more tags. But no, one was tagged and the other was not. And more interestingly, the one that was tagged had been signed by the hunter transferring it to somebody else, which meant that the hunter for that particular animal was likely no longer in camp. Interesting. So, yeah, it was all really interesting. And so I radioed um, my uh, game and fish colleagues that were patrolling elsewhere and told them where I was at and what I had found. And so one of those uh, compatriots found me. And so we together decided that the one without a tag was definitely now ours. So we put <laughs> that in his truck. And we left the other tagged animal hanging and then waited for the crowd of hunters to return, which they did right at dusk. By then, we had a third person on our team. And so we just kept an eye out to see who got out of the vehicles and where the rifles ended up. And when they realized that Game and Fish was in their camp, there was a lot of scattering. And um, it looked as if uh, maybe some, some rifles got put under some clothing and sleeping bags and that kind of thing. And so the whole thing started to look a little fishy. And it took a while to really work this all out. And so we asked about the hunter who was no longer in camp. And um, it seemed strange because this was opening day that they were already not there. Mm. And so we managed to find out where that hunter worked, had our radio room call the place of business that was still open. It was a retail store. And they said, um, well, he was here all day. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> so what, what it boiled down to was that person's dad was on the hunt and was very skilled. And he had killed both elk. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and didn't want to 
tag his yet because he was still helping everybody else. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so it was basically a meat camp and um, not legal. So we ended up taking both elk, seizing a rifle, citing dad for multiple harvest. <laughs> my gosh, what a rotten thing to do. Yeah. And, you know, these were very respectable nice people one of them was a deputy sheriff with one of our counties the dad was a uh, draftsman for an architectural firm goodness this was just in talking to them it was obvious that they had hunted this way for years for years and saw nothing wrong with it you know it's like okay we got a tag that's our animal, not our hunt. That's our animal. <laughs> oh my gosh! So <laughs> this is so interesting to me because I, I, um, I guess it was in graduate school. I took a class on law enforcement, uh, natural resources law enforcement, and one of the things we talked about was I think the eleven reasons that people commit wildlife crimes or break um, wildlife laws. And, or the motivations. And it was very interesting to me because, I don't know, to my mind, I thought that people just broke the law for, you know, a couple reasons. Like, they don't care or they have some other motivation. But it was really interesting and eye-opening to learn about all of these different motivations. And I wonder what you thought, what you think, in hindsight, the, the motivation was for these people to approach hunting that way. I think it was probably a tradition that they had grown up with, not in Arizona, but perhaps where they lived before, like the Midwest or Texas, uh, or even where I grew up in Pennsylvania, where you have white-tailed deer coming out your ears. <laughs> yeah. And um, the wildlife laws were originally written uh, to limit the harvest by the locals who are primarily hunting for food. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was, you know, I didn't condemn these people at all. It's just, they were carrying on a tr- set of traditions that they had grown up with. What was distressing is they were passing it on to their next generation. There sure. were some young people in camp and we don't have that abundance of resource here in Arizona. So there really is a need to restrict the harvest. Um, but, but I guess that, that's, that was my take, that that's where that came from. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. So on another topic related to elk, I understand that you are the board president of the Arizona Elk Society. That's correct. Can you tell us, first of all, what that role entails? And then I'm also very interested in how you came to be in that role. So here in Arizona, we have a number of nonprofit organizations that are focused on uh, big game species. So we have the Arizona Elk Society, the Arizona Deer Association, the Arizona... um, Antelope Foundation, uh, the Arizona uh, Desert Bighorn Sheep Society. That's kind of the original one. And uh, when our state established these uh, commissioner 
hunt tags that are sold by raffle or auction, it really spawned the creation of these groups to help the game and fish department in determining how that money should be spent. Mm. And during my career at the game and fish, I had um, created what are called habitat partnership committees. And this was an effort to try to get the hunters and the game department and the cattlemen all on the same sheet of music, especially around elk that um, we should all be working together to make the habitat better. And um, those committees still exist. And it's in those committees at the more local level that lists of proposed projects are developed for spending that money and match money from the federal government and uh, money that's raised by these organizations. So that, that was the source of them originally Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation was the only nonprofit for elk. Um, one of their banquet committees decided that they wanted all the money to stay in Arizona, and so they created the Arizona Elk Society. When I retired from the Game and Fish Department, I was immediately recruited to be on the board of the Arizona Antelope Foundation, which I did. And I have actually served a tour with them, and I'm a past president of that organization. And um, Arizona Elk Society um, asked me to join their board a few years back uh, when they were going through some transition. So the reason I've been asked to be on these boards is because of my history as chief of game management for the state and my uh, knowledge of uh, big game animals here in Arizona. So that's that's how I got involved. As far as being president of that board, we're in an interesting time of the organizations. Arizona Elk Society has grown the most in terms of capacity. We have a uh, uh, we have people that we've hired to be the executive director, to coordinate our volunteer work projects, uh, to administer in our office. We bought a building four years ago and um, pull off three banquets right now in our state for mm -hmm. fundraising. And uh, we also have a program called Heroes Rising Outdoors which started with um, taking disabled veterans on uh, big game hunts using tags that were donated back to the game and fish department by people that couldn't use them. Oh, that's a cool idea. It's a very cool idea, and it's a wonderful program. We're starting to see some of those uh, veterans get involved with our organization, which I think is real exciting. That is. I... So one of the things as you're talking about this that strikes me is the idea of management dollars staying local. Um, and, you know, in, in the U.S., our model is such that uh, wildlife management is up to the states. Um, so there's that element of locality. But it sounds like in what you're talking about, there's it's even beyond that with these I don't. I know some states call them super tags, but tags that are being raffled off and used as a fundraiser, essentially. 
what do you what do you see as the importance or the benefit of that kind of a structure so i think they have done a couple of interesting things one putting making money available that's specifically designed to go back out onto the ground for conservation whether it's helping an agency with surveys of the animals or actually going out and doing habitat projects or doing research about the animal. Each state's a little different. Here in Arizona, we really made sure that the money raised went back on the ground. In some other states, it kind of goes into the general game and fish fund and how it gets spent maybe isn't as directly related. (laughs) Yeah. And so I like the Arizona program. I'm a little concerned that they may start getting carried away with it, um, with adding more and more tags because um, there's such a demand. Mm-hmm. There, there is a market. Yep. <laughs> and so I don't want to see our North American model eroded by this thought process. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm sure it it could be a bit of a cash cow because simple economics tell us supply yes. and, supply and demand, right? Well, exactly, and and so then you're really catering to those who can afford it. Yeah. Although if you run it as raffles, everybody theoretically has an equal opportunity. Um, and as a society, we seem to be real big on gambling again. <laughs> <laughs> Coming back around. Yep. Oh man. So okay. Before we go on to the next question, we're just going to take a quick break to hear from one of our partners. Howdy, Artemis listeners. This is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast, where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at nwfoutdoors.org. And we're back. So you obviously are an expert in big game, big game management, um, but now you have a role with the National Audubon Society are, is this is it your job or is this another volunteer role? No, this is actually my job. Okay. Well, can you and tell us about that? Yes. So I'm the Audubon Southwest Director of Bird Conservation. And so what that entails is uh, managing our important bird areas program in the two states, um, paying attention to... Uh, land actions that may have adverse impact on birds, such as siting of uh, solar and wind development, Um, working with our land management agencies to get bird conservation um, integrated into their on-the-ground management. And it's in this realm that I'm really interested in the linkage with the big game. Yeah. Because the big game programs are raising all this money. 
for conservation action on the ground. And so our state game and fish department has gotten huge grants through the farm bill the, uh, to do uh, grassland restoration work. And I'm interested in a bird called the pinion jay that uh, lives in the pinion and juniper woodlands. And that's the primary woody vegetation in northern Arizona that they want to remove for grasslands. Mm. So working with the biologists that are interested in the big game and, and finding that sweet spot that allows for um, the mosaic that you would need in treatment uh, so that you still have your pinion juniper stand to benefit uh, pinion jay and, uh, and some other birds that are obligates to that woodland community. That's super interesting. That was going to, something that I wanted to ask you about was if your bird work was kind of hand in hand with some of the needs that you see for big game, it sounds like sometimes maybe they're not, but I imagine there's a lot of um, habitat work that provides for yes. a, a suite of species, right? Ungulates and birds. Well, yeah. And on the flip side, uh, in Southeast Arizona, we have some grassland obligate birds that most definitely are benefiting uh, from grassland restoration efforts that are primarily focused to benefit pronghorn antelope. And um, the Arizona Antelope Foundation got a National Fish and Wildlife Foundation grant that has just finished up where they did a whole lot of brokering of that grant money with the, the big game tag account money for pronghorn and deer and uh, natural resource conservation service farm bill money that was going to the ranchers to do some really beneficial and strategic treatment of mesquite and acacia that were invading uh, um, the grasslands. I think what was most interesting is uh, when they overdid it on one pasture, the scaled quail didn't do so well. So mm. now you've got a bird that's a game bird. <laughs> it's yeah. like, oops. <laughs> so, so by putting in um, uh, buffer strips or keeping the drainages untreated with maybe just some selected pathways for the pronghorn to cross, now you have benefit for scaled quail and all the other birds that need that woodland uh, structure. Um, and you still get the benefit for the pronghorn and the grassland dependent birds. One of the things I hear you, I hear keep coming up um, is this idea of a mosaic and kind of a, a pattern of different vegetative communities or even just cover types across the landscape. And I feel like that's something so important that you know, people that maybe don't have a background in wildlife management might not always have top of mind, but, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like any time that we're out there managing, we want to be thinking about that mosaic and providing a variety of situations on the landscape for animals to take advantage of. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And, you know, I'm involved with a grasslands <clears throat> working group for the Southwest and just heard a presentation uh, from some folks in Texas. And that's exactly what they're doing is they're maintaining some level of mosaic and edge 
everything I ever learned in wildlife biology really promotes that concept. And this applies uh, in the northeast deciduous woodlands as much as it applies out here in the arid west. That's super interesting. I didn't think about I don't think about it as much. I guess my mind when I think about the arid west is that it's a very static system as opposed to the very hot and wet southeast or you know, just other parts of the country that have um, more water. But in this conversation, it occurs to me that that probably isn't the case. <laughs> no, not at all. I love our vegetation map for the state of Arizona and actually for the Southwest. It looks like a crazy quilt. There's so <laughs> many different colors. And so there is amazing diversity of vegetation and wildlife in the, in the arid West, especially in our Sonoran desert. And, um, I tell my friends and colleagues in the East, I said, we don't have a lot of anything, but we have a little bit of just about everything. Mm. So there's a lot of biological diversity. In fact, um, southeastern Arizona, southwestern New Mexico, and Mexico as it comes up to our border, that region is considered a global biodiversity hotspot. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah. So what are, I feel like you're positioned well to speak to this. What would you say are two bird species that really need a lot of attention right now? <laughs> Sorry to Easy question, say. I know. <laughs> no, I know. I mean, there's one where a huge amount of resources are going into trying to restore it to the landscape, and that's the California condor. Mm. I don't work with that program, uh, the nonprofit that's really involved in it here and in Utah is the Peregrine Fund. And, you know, they're breeding these guys in captivity and putting them out in the wild. Um, <clears throat> they're establishing new populations um, on the Native American uh, community in the Pacific Northwest is now trying to establish California condor on their lands. And, this bird is interesting because of the direct nexus to lead ammunition mm -hmm. and lead in carcasses and gut piles and how sensitive this bird is to lead poisoning. And um, I sure would like to see the dial move on recreational ammunition going to non-lead. And it seems there's been a recent resurgence in some effort to try to promote that idea. I think the National Wildlife Federation has gotten engaged in it again. Yeah, that's certainly one of our tenants as Artemis and, the, you know, the greater NWF Outdoors and Beyond is to try to get sports women and men to voluntarily opt to use non-toxic shot and non-toxic ammunition. Um, I'm interested i wonder do you have any numbers top of mind like what what it takes to do a condor in and the reason i ask this is that we were on a dove hunt a couple weeks ago and i got into what i'll call a debate um, <laughs> with another hunter he's, he's a friend of ours but i was going down and talking about you know why we should be shooting non-lead for doves and the amount that gets deposited and then some studies on you know a dove ingesting one lead pellet is gonna die and that I was don't know sobering. If that's true, is it? 
Well, I looked up some research papers and maybe I'll look them up again um, and link them to the show notes here. But in my cursory, you know, look on my iPhone in the Dove field, it seemed like in captivity, they had done some like threshold tests and that, yeah, maybe one pellet was enough to kill a dove, which is obviously much smaller than a condor. Yeah. So I'm looking at, you get sublethal stress levels in the animal. And so there's that going on as well. So other Mm -hmm. birds that eat carrion, like uh, uh, the bald eagle, uh, are going to be, are going to ingest lead. And, you know, the conversations actually extended over to lead and fishing. Uh, And I don't know if that's as much of a problem. uh, But, uh, and and there is a lot of back and forth with hunters and uh, <clears throat> you know wildlife management agencies. I um, also the fact that they can get lead through other pathways than uh, spent ammunition. They can get it from trash ingestion. And California condors are garbage pails. Mm. And one of the issues is they'll even feed a young chick a, uh, a bottle top. And so... Oh, you mean like the cap of like a beer yeah, bottle? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, so wow. there's there's a lot of challenges around this particular bird. And it didn't evolve with us humans in mind. <laughs> bottle caps, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they seem to like shiny objects. I don't know. Oh, goodness. And so, but you, the original question is what's most endangered? And, and that's certainly a bird that needs some help. Um, you know, here in Arizona, um, I'm interested in uh, the Western population of yellow-billed cuckoo. Um, that bird is heavily associated with the, the riparian forests of our rivers and streams and the associated mesquite forests. Um, What I like about that particular bird is all we have to do is um, take some stressors away from our rivers and streams so that those forests can come back and the bird shows up. So yeah, I'm optimistic you can bring back yellow bill cuckoo populations pretty easily with some thoughtfulness about when you graze cattle in a riparian area, managing off-highway vehicle traffic in a riparian area, um, that kind of thing. Very cool. Okay. Yeah. So uh, some, some hope there. <laughs> well, yeah, there's always hope. <laughs> I, I'm sure, yeah, you made it to this point in your career. You're still yeah. going strong. You have to be a hopeful person. That's right. And, and, and you know, going back to the um, Arizona Elk Society, um, we've pulled off some great meadow restoration projects using kind of simple, old-fashioned techniques that have been around for centuries. Uh, building zuni bowls and uh, wait, building what? They call them zuni bowls. So you just get a lot of big boulders and you throw them into your head cut stream and you kind of make them in the shape of a bowl so that when there's the next rainstorm, the velocity of the water is broken up by that. 
Interesting. And it tends, tends to spread the water out. And you do a whole series of those and then maybe some um, some deadfalls. Uh, you, you cut down some trees and you put the logs across, again, to create a break in the flow. And we've completely restored, I think, three meadows now. And the U.S. Forest Service was shocked at how successful these projects were. (laughs) Yarrison Elk Society got a national award for the work. (laughs) Wow. Okay. This sounds, when you say Zunibal, it makes me think maybe there's some indigenous knowledge here that was borrowed. Yeah, I think perhaps. And there's a number of nonprofits here in the West, Southwest in particular, that have become real expert in these kinds of restoration techniques. Cool. Love that. I love it too. And it's really exciting. And some progressive ranchers are on board with this stuff too. And um, there's a ranch in Southeast Arizona that when he was done putting in all of these uh, uh, retention dam structures all up through his watershed, a stream that had been intermittent became year round and we got native fish and frogs in it now. Oh, wow. I know. That's pretty cool. (laughs) That's really cool. Yeah. (laughs) Gosh, you, okay. So you have done and seen so much. Um, I would love to know what you wish more sportswomen knew about conservation. Hmm. Well, I'm an instructor at becoming an outdoors woman uh, here in Arizona, and that's been a wonderful pathway to raise awareness about uh, conservation and management of our wildlife species, um, instilling in folks the philosophy of the North American wild, uh, model for wildlife management. I think that would be uh, number one, so that there's an appreciation and understanding that they are contributing through the purchase of their licenses Mm -hmm. and that they can give back by becoming involved with these um, conservation organizations. Here in Arizona, it would be any of these um, critter groups that I just named off our Arizona Wildlife Federation, um, even um, you know other conservation organizations that go out and try to engage in restoration of the land. And, and you know, it makes hearing about all of the roles that you've held and your experiences. It makes complete sense that you would end up in these roles and do them very well. What words do you have for women that feel like maybe they don't have enough expertise or their voice isn't going to be heard or they're just not sure about how to kind of dip their toes in the water? Well, the the best advisement, and I just gave this to a group of women up at Becoming Outdoors Woman last weekend uh, that came to our beginner hunter class. And I said, join one of these organizations volunteer if you don't join and go on these um, projects because you don't need any knowledge to help move rocks or modify a fence line. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
and you're going to meet like-minded people. You're going to meet folks that like to hunt and fish and be outdoors. And you're going to learn so much just hanging out at the campfire at the end of your workday. Sure. And that's um, back in the day, you would join a local rod and gun club. Ironically, many of them really didn't allow the women to fully participate. That's <laughs> no longer the case. But <laughs> some Hopefully that doesn't make a resurgence like gambling I, has. <laughs> Kidding. Yeah, no, I, I hope it doesn't. And, um, but where there are still rod and gun clubs, they tend to be family friendly. And those are also terrific venues. Uh, I have friends that are real active with the local predator calling clubs. Oh, wow. Because you can go out and call predators and take pictures. You don't have to shoot them. <laughs> That's a good point. Well, and in, but isn't it normally at night? I guess you just have to have the equipment. Yeah, yeah. It tends to be at night or dusk. And again, it's you're going to meet a group of people that are really interested in the out of doors, that have skill sets around attracting in an animal and how to be uh, quiet and secretive enough that they don't detect you. Mm-hmm. And just that whole. Um, strategy of getting close to an animal and photography requires all of this too so there's multiple entry points that's a good point and so um really the best way to get involved is to get out there and do stuff um it's interesting to me that it seems that folks struggle as they always have with finding the opportunities and finding the venues. And um, it seems like some things never change. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that because, yeah, that's kind of one of the main tenets of Artemis as well is to try to cultivate that community and make it available to women. And a lot of the way that we do that is through social media and um, because that's the tools that we have at hand. But um I don't know. I love what you said about getting out there and doing it. I feel like that can take you a lot farther than scrolling the internet oftentimes. Right. Yeah, just find a project, go out there and volunteer. <laughs> yeah, just put your time in. Yeah, and it may be not related to hunting and fishing initially. You know, there are a whole lot of volunteer opportunities right here in the Phoenix area with our mountain preserves. There's steward volunteer stewardship um, programs where you become a certified steward uh, to care for our mountain preserves. And so there's lots of entry points for sure. people to get engaged with the out of doors in nature. Well, I would, it sounds like you've been hunting for many years. Um, I don't, do you fish as well? Are you an angler? Not active. I have a lot of gear. The thing I concluded is I'm a terrible bait caster. <laughs> Join the club. <laughs> I do um, like to play around with fly fishing and um, and spin casting. I, I just um, haven't had the time to play around with fishing 
And because I'm a terrible bait caster, my incentive to go to a local reservoir is really low. <laughs> That's fair. That's very fair. Um, I'm a big proponent of chasing what you're good at. I feel like a lot of time is lost trying to... I'm not saying you shouldn't try things that don't come naturally, but right. I capitalize on strengths, I think. Um, so, okay, in that case, can you share with us one of your favorite moments from the field? Take your time. Well, yeah, well, we started at the beginning where I mentioned uh, harvesting that bull elk a few years ago on an mm. archery hunt. And um, that whole evening, night, next day was such an adventure and very fulfilling. Um, my hunt success percent with archery elk hunting is probably around 20%. So one in five. <laughs> that seems good to me. I don't know, yeah. but <laughs> and uh, and you have to get drawn. And I wasn't lucky this year to get a tag, so I'm going out with a friend instead and helping her. Um, so I was in a blind, ground blind, and this group of elk came into this water tank, and. Um, a younger bull, probably a three to four year old bull, presented himself <laughs> in, in my comfort range. So I'm very clear about what I consider my capability to shoot and kill an elk. And so I shot the animal. I knew right away I had hit him with a long shot and he took off and went over the berm of the water tank. I dutifully sat there for 10 minutes before I went after him. <laughs> Longest 10 minutes ever. Oh my gosh, yes. And so I um, found the blood trail and circled it, and he had circled back and crossed the two-track road that I had come in on, maybe 200 yards away from the tank and that was about where the blood trails started to get real scarce and that's one of the challenges with archery hunting is um even uh you know a through and through arrow the um the wound holes can seal up yeah i'm nervous about that for this year yeah so the animal's gonna die but um finding it could get trickier so I called my friend Mark, and he drove out, and he arrived right as it was getting dark. So we put on our headlamps and lit up a, this is a trick, the old Coleman lanterns with using the uh, Coleman fuel. That, yeah. that light really illuminates blood oh, effectively. Okay. So that, that's worth having one of those old puppies around <laughs> yeah you mean like with the little cloth i don't know what you call yeah them. yeah right the mantle the yes the mantle, mantle. Yeah. right and so we had one of those and we had our good strong headlamp lights and so now we're not only looking for blood we're looking for track we're looking for crushed grass or you know just any evidence and then so we're moving very, very slowly. And every time we found another thing that looked like clue. evidence, clue, we would hang a tape on a tree and, you know, a 
surveyor's tape. And we're just working our way along and we can hear the bugling of the bulls and the mewing of the cow elk from the herd. Oh, wow. They're not very far away. And our supposition was this elk I had shot was trying to get back to that herd. So we were pretty sure it was going to be in the area. And so we're just creeping along and creeping along. And I went down slope a little bit. And I said, Mark, I can smell elk. They're close. And I thought it was the herd. And then there was this bark. And Mark said, what was that? Was that a, a, a bear or a, maybe some javelina? And we didn't hear it again. And I said, well, I can't smell the elk anymore. I'm coming back towards you. And I came back up slope and I went, oh, I really smell elk. <laughs> he said, that's because you're dead bull is right here <laughs> oh my gosh so we found him and um that bark was his last gasp wow and so then we're trying to figure out how to get this bull elk out and we tried to hoist him in a tree to skin him and the branch broke and i finally looked at mark and i said you know i only want a skull for my mount <laughs> I don't need to have a whole animal. Do you have your saws all with you? Yeah, just <laughs> so, chunk this baby up. So, so we chunked him up and got him out of there and then spent all that morning getting the meat on ice mm. and back at his cabin. And when that was all done at about 10 a.m., we both went to sleep. <laughs> okay, so what time of day did you shoot him at? About 5.30 p.m. Oh, goodness. That is a long time. Yeah. And so we didn't find the animal until close to 11 at night. You know, I guess you could make this argument for small game hunting as well, but big game hunting, I feel like, gives you, beyond the, you know, the emotional connection to the animal and the up-close experience, the physicality of getting that food home right. is... A, a whole nother dimension of appreciation that I feel like if you know it, you know it in your bones, right? Yes. Yes. You know it in your bones. And so once we woke up that afternoon, then we, um, we cut and packaged all the meat. And so we have uh, th those um, sealer things. Mm -hmm. Vacuum they, sealer. Yeah. They are terrific. Oh yeah. Cause the meat really keeps Yep. Much better than if it's wrapped like in butcher paper. Yeah. Because there's absolutely no air. And so um, the time it can exist in your freezer is really extended, mm -hmm. which is nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I try as much as possible in my life to avoid plastic use, but I really feel like that's something I'm never going to get away with with, from, as, with wild game processing because it is so... It's so far superior to anything else. I'm going to experiment with canning, I think, canning oh, meat. Right. Um, but aside from that, if it's going in the freezer, I feel like, yeah, there, right. you, can't, you can't beat the vacuum sealer. No, you really can't. So anyhow, um, I'm down to my last rump roast. <laughs> oh, man. All right. It's definitely time to head back out then. Yeah. Yeah. Good oh. deal. Well, 
this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, I feel like I could have talked to you for a few hours to hear more about (laughs) your life in conservation. Um, But we're getting close to the hour. So let's transition to our weekly closer, hits and misses. What have you been aiming for and how did it go? Okay, so my big hit is I finally sprang for a travel trailer and I'm picking it up this afternoon. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. For hunting or just life? Everything. Everything. Hunting for sure. Life, going out on the volunteer projects. I'm tired of sleeping on my little cot in my tent. Man, I don't blame you. I'm already, I'm tired of sleeping on the ground and I'm early 30s, so <laughs> you have made it a long way. Yeah, and after getting rained out on my last elk hunt and I was trying to use my horse trailer for my shelter and it leaked and it's like, this really stinks. <laughs> <laughs> you know when it's time. You know when it's time. So I am very excited about that because what I know I will now do is go on many more of these volunteer weekend projects. Mm-hmm. And I am already feeling way more excited about my deer hunt. <laughs> oh, that's good. I love it when you identify something that truly does make life better and right. go after it. Yeah. That's awesome. Oh. Well, I have my most recent hit is from this morning. I have been baking sourdough bread on and off for a few years. And I got back into it after having my daughter and getting to a point where I felt like I could manage maintaining a starter again. Um, and I bought this wheat. I've been using heirloom wheat to try to, I've been milling my own flour, like the whole bit. And I have been struggling. The only way I can make a really good loaf is with, um, white flour. And the whole point of home milling wheat was to, you know, have some nutritional benefits there. So I got, I bought a sifter off Amazon. It's like $11. It's not fancy. I have to put all the energy into it, the kinetic energy. Um, but I made my best loaf ever this morning. It How had, cool. It has loft and it tastes amazing. And it's, uh, yeah. So that has been, I don't know, maybe four years in the making. So I texted my husband. I was like, I, this is my best loaf. <laughs> so yeah i'm eating it i ate it for lunch today so wonderful well i love heirloom wheats and what's interesting is that they are much much lower in gluten yeah i mean the ultimate i think would be einkorn but that stuff is so expensive i'm gonna have to grow it myself before i can use einkorn yeah i i got some of that and i gave a package of seed to a friend of mine who grows corn down south eastern arizona he said you know he wasn't sure it would make it here even at his elevation because it does best in a cooler environment Mm -hmm. and um yeah that um some of that older type of corn varieties that make great polenta (laughs) oh i bet oh my gosh yeah we could i could do a whole food podcast also (laughs) yeah but i I'm very intrigued by the heritage wheat, and I think that what has happened with industrial agriculture is it's all coming from durum wheat, which is high in gluten, and that may very well be why so many people have um, gluten allergy, because Mm -hmm. they're getting so much more of it in their diet and processed food in particular. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you go back to probably when I was a kid and certainly with my parents, 
you were getting wheat that was locally grown and milled. And so it wasn't all this germ wheat. It was local stuff. Yeah. I mean, I've gone down the rabbit hole. I have different wheats that I use to make pastry flour versus bread flour. Mm. And this one that I did, I used this morning for the loaf. It's called Turkey Red. It's It actually used to be the predominant wheat variety used in the United States for baking. Oh, wow. Turkey Red. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I tell you, it's been tough to get, like I said, the loft in that loaf because of the lower gluten. And apparently the bran is very sharp and cuts through the gluten molecules. So sifting it has been like the key to getting the right Ah, ratio. Um, That's interesting. But the flavor, I mean, when you eat regular bread, and I'm going on this tangent because I feel like folks that eat wild game can appreciate this nuance. Um, But when you just eat white commodity flour, like from the store, it's it's turned into something, but it doesn't have a flavor in and of itself. You know, you flavor it with whatever you put on the bread. Right. Um, and this is like, I mean, I put butter on it because I love butter, but the, it tastes like something. It tastes like its own food. And it was just, it was a revelation when I cut it open this morning and took a bite. I was pretty excited about it. Oh, that's exciting. It. That's so cool. Yeah. Th- <laughs> thank you for... Um, <laughs> For indulging my excitement <laughs> around something not sporting related. That's right. <laughs> uh, we like to illustrate also that um, people can be complete humans and have diverse interests as well. And hunting and angling can just be a part of that. Well, you know, part of hunting camp is the food. That's true. And I, I love putting together my hunt camp recipes. And I, I have a... Um, a, a my campfire walk is the end disc from a disker, an agricultural oh disker. God. That's so cool. <laughs> Don't drop it on your toe. That would no, hurt. no, no, no. <laughs> a farmer, an Arizona farmer, made that for me, and even it's got little legs too that I can screw into. I was okay. I was going to ask how you stand it up over the heat. Yeah, That's so it's, cool. It's got three little legs that just screw into it and it can sit over the coals. <laughs> wow. Okay. I'm going to put that on the list. We need that someday. A disc <laughs> walk for the campfire. Love it. That's right. <laughs> oh man. Thank you so much, Tice. This has been a wonderful conversation. Yeah. It's been fun visiting with you, Ashley. So perhaps we'll cross paths one of these days. Oh, I hope so. Be where, where I didn't ask what part of the country do you live in? I live in Tennessee currently. Oh, okay. So I'm in the Southeast. Yep. So, but, um, but yeah, I'm from Minnesota originally and I've lived here and there as I traveled around, um, as a wildlife technician. So Okay. This okay. is where I am currently. My husband's a biologist and a game warden, and he's from this area. So, all right, we're back. Well, you've here got now. you've got elk. Is it that land between the lakes area? There, well, there is some elk. Um, not exactly where we live, but not too far. Right. And yeah, that's a whole nother thing. Um, to talk about, but the Tennessee elk reintroduction or the elk population is very small. Okay. Um, it kind of borders um, North Carolina and Tennessee. And then to the north in Kentucky, they have had an incredible, incredibly successful elk reintroduction effort. Um, it's just, yeah, it's it's wonderful. And I think it's largely a product of actually a lot of what are privately owned lands, but they're owned by a lot of mining companies and industrial. Okay. And so there's just this expanse of habitat you know maybe not always prime but it's contiguous and it's relatively right. undisturbed in kind of steep country rough country right um 
so yeah, they're doing great just to the north of us. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's um, I love reading about the historic big mammals that used to be. Oh my gosh, I'm in really... the Appalachians and the East, uh, bison, wood bison. Yes, woods bison. I am reading a book right now. I need to look up the title. It's the actually I have the cover right here. I would recommend this to you and anyone else that hasn't read it. It's called The Time of the Buffalo by Tom McHugh. Okay. And it is a complete anthology of bison. It gets into um, Native American cultures that relied on bison. And it talks sure. about woods bison, behavior. Bio- it's He lived with a buffalo for his, I think, his PhD research for like four years. Interesting. It's really amazing, and we're—I need to cut this off because we're going like way tangent. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I'll—I can email you, um, and we can link to it in the show notes if you're interested. I highly recommend it. Yes, yeah, I would be interested in that actually. I love reading about things like that, and I've been absorbing all the recent books on beaver as well. Oh, that's another animal that's amazing. Absolutely, so. yeah, I'm. We need to do another episode on beavers. <laughs> yes, 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 definitely. <laughs> Find some of the beaver believers and yes. talk to them. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, I love it. Okay. Thanks for joining us this week on the Artemis Podcast. We hope you're having a great week. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. Bye.